15. So my book, um, Every Family Has a Story, and it's kind of byline, every family has a story of love and loss and joy and pain. And all of you watching will have your own family story, which you'll probably think about as I speak. The story that I was told as I was, when I was a child was that everything was fine, that there wasn't anything going wrong, although there had been multiple unresolved traumas. And that everything that was talked about didn't matter as it turned out. And all the things that were important were never voiced. And that I think really is the root of me becoming um, a therapist because I, in the end, became much more interested in finding out what people were feeling and thinking on the inside than what they were saying. And so I've been a therapist for over 30 years. And every client that has walked through my door through those 30 years, whatever their presenting issue, has brought their family with them. Their family of origin, I mean, this is in their words, their family of origin, or the family that they're making, spending great tracks of time trying to work out what has been going on. And one of the strong things that I learned from those clients as they walked through my door was what in one generation, the suffering of one generation that doesn't get resolved, passes down to the next generation until someone is prepared to feel the pain. And for that reason, I became very interested in multi-generation families. I think we've spent way too much time talking individually and talking about ourselves individually and about parenting and not nearly enough focus has been on the family system, all of the generations and how they influence and shape each other. Um, and I wanted to look at why some families thrive through adversity and why others fragment. And for me, the most personal is the most universal. So I always work with real families and these stories that I tell, there are eight case studies are real families. And I worked with three and four generations of families all on a Zoom screen with me. Um, and they were a very diverse mix. There was a black Afro-Caribbean family um, who'd had a child that died. There was an Italian family where there'd been suicide um, 40 years before. There was a gay couple who were adopting a baby. And the family I'm gonna tell you a little bit about today was a five generation ultra-Orthodox Jewish family. And I learned so much from all of these stories, things that I sort of knew already, but you kind of learn again when you work with people. And Katty was the great grandmother. She was 92. She was a Holocaust survivor. And what we know psychotherapeutically, and I'm sure all of you do, is that there's transgenerational trauma. A lot of the research has been done in Israel that particularly survivors of the Holocaust, one of the things people say is they survived Auschwitz, but they died in Auschwitz because the trauma is so intense and gets passed down. So that's what I expected to see when I saw these five screen, five little um, windows on my Zoom screen. And that is not what I saw because this family did not have transgenerational trauma. And trauma is not inevitable. 
And the thing that influenced this particular family, this unique family, was genetics. Katty was a sparkly, bright-eyed 92-year-old. And the leap I made was that she was probably a sparkly 14-year-old, which is why she wasn't picked by Mengler, why she was given the odd piece of potato or the odd cake, and that enabled her to survive. And she also had very secure attachment roots, as Elif was sharing, that she, I could feel the warm Hungarian kitchen that she came from, you know, decades later, she felt very loved. And that love for her parents and her siblings who had all been murdered was very much alive and present in her. And that protected her. And she had hope. Hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. And she said a very simple sentence. She said, I wanted to see what would happen next. And the final piece of her jigsaw of how she not only survived but thrived is that the meaning she made of her experience. She said to her children, I survived so I could marry Isaac, her much beloved husband, so that I could have you. And so she was by no means traumatized, but there were behaviors that did get passed down to every member of the family, even the 21-year-old great-granddaughter, which was none of them could wear stripes. They were all frightened of dogs, particularly barking dogs. And chimneys always sparked in them a fear of the gas chimneys. It kind of brought that to them. And this was a family that worried. So in some ways, they alchemized the trauma into worry. I mean, all of us, the research shows, we worry more now about our children than ever in history. Um, but they worried a lot and they protected each other and they didn't like fights. So they always wanted to keep everything under the radar. So there is a cost in that of your emotional self that if you have to kind of guard yourself and protect each other, that is quite a kind of um, uh, binding way of behaving. And the biggest thing was that Catty was a tough act to follow. So whenever something bad happened to them, they would say to themselves, well, I lost my job, but I mean, I wasn't in Auschwitz. I can't feel bad about that. So they would always kind of diminish their experiences because it was compared to Catty. And they were an incredible loving family. And of course, the thing that sustained them being an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family was their faith and the structure of their faith and their, and their belief. And that enabled them to overcome even those small difficulties that they faced. But what was also interesting is that although I live a completely different life and way of life, I saw so much of myself in them um, and learned so much. So, I mean, what did I learn from the eight families that I work with? I learned that where we love most, we hate most, we fight most, and we make our deepest mistakes, which is why families drive us mad. It's because we care so much. And that we're always on a spectrum of functional and dysfunctional, depending on the external pressures, like a pandemic, which I think put families under the most enormous pressure. There is no perfect family. And I think often now with social media, there is this idea of a perfect family, of kind of curated family life. And we all know that the foundation of a secure functioning family, good enough family, is the underpinning uh, emotion of love. But love 
you know, is not a soft skill. Love is difficult. Love in receiving love, love in giving love, love in action, love in stepping back, love in moving forward, loving letting go. How you do that within all the different generations of your family is a skill that can be learned and is complex. Um, but with that love, the thing that when I looked at how do some families thrive in adversity, it is the love, the quality of the connection and the intention of goodwill between every family member that in the end allowed them and enabled them to hold together even when they faced the most difficult challenges because they, could, they had their family as the bedrock of their life that they could turn to when all of the rest of the world was falling apart. And that was probably the most important thing that enabled them, enabled them to overcome. And so looking at that led me to devise these 12 touchstones. These aren't like how to, like do these 12 things and everything's gonna be fine. It's more that if your family is feeling quite off kilter, you could look at some of these touchstones. It's for the well-being of family and think about, you know, am I allowing some of these things? Is there change and I'm not allowing it? And, you know, do we, are we having enough fun as a family? I, you know, I think in the pandemic, we certainly haven't had enough fun. And when we kind of choose to put down our tasks, have fun together and play with different versions of, with different versions of ourselves. And as Elif says, when we build those memories, they, we go back to them. We go back to them in our minds and in our memories and in the places. And they are, can be key for the rest of our lives. The other really big one is self-compassion, is that we, from each other, we observe how everyone behaves. And if your mum or your parent or your grandparent is very, has what I call a shitty committee, is criticizing themselves, they're not self-compassionate. That's what we observe and that's what we do. So if we can be kind to ourselves, that's what we'll show our family member. And the other kind of important one, which I think we, we kind of shy away from, although it happens all the time, is to fight productively. Again, similar to what Alif was saying, it's never about not having a fight. There will always be different disagreements in families. It's allowing the rupture, the fight, but how you repair, that you intentionally use the fight as a context to understand each other better, to get closer, to make sense of what really is going on beneath the fight about the bins or whatever it is on top. And that you can um, resolve the fight and so it is properly repaired and you don't use that same fight as the list of laundry, of the laundry list of, of things that you're furious about that you bring back to the next fight. So it's properly kind of cleaned and put away. And one of the things that came up a lot with the families was how do we have these difficult conversations? Not everyone can see a therapist like you. And one of the things I think is most helpful is walking and talking as a family, being out in nature, being outside enables you to um, have the rhythm of being side by side, not eyeball each other. If anyone asks a child or a grandparent, what are you feeling? No, they will always want to punch you. But if you're outside 
and walking along in rhythm together, looking at the ground, having space for silence, then one person can begin to have a question of, you know, that was, you know, why are we fighting every Sunday? Or you can begin to explore what is really going on beneath the sur surface. And so my last question for you is maybe the hidden stories from the past are the things that are secretly contaminating your life. So if you feel there's something wrong with you or there's something missing, missing my suggestion to you is perhaps it didn't start with you. Look up, explore, ask questions, find the untold stories, the secrets, the shame, the suicides, the deaths, the, 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 all of the things that have gone wrong because the story you tell yourself is the person you become. And if you change your story, that does change your outcome. And you can begin to imagine that the family that you want is the first step in telling yourself the story of who you're gonna be.